Hello, and welcome to Lens, the podcast brought to you by British Screen Forum. My name is John Gisby, and I'm delighted that you're listening. Welcome to episode 10 of Lens, in which my guest is Sir Peter Bazalgette. We had a very lively conversation about how public service broadcasting was instrumental to his success as an independent producer, and also his belief in its ongoing importance to the UK's democracy, culture and economy. And I was joined for this session for the first time by a live audience of British Screen Forum members, who between them asked much more interesting questions than I did, covering creative clusters, why terrestrial broadcasting is essential to national security, and the idea that the UK needs to consolidate down to two public service broadcasters from its current four. Thanks to John Enser and everyone at CMS for hosting. I just wish that the wrong type of snow, or more likely the wrong type of track, hadn't stopped me from getting there in person. Uh, Welcome to um, our very first Lens podcast live. Uh, brought to you uh, from uh, from Central London. Thank you to John Enser for hosting us at uh, CMS Cameron McKenna. Um, we have uh, a great guest today. We are joined by Sabita Bazalgett, uh, legendary producer, uh, chair of the Royal Television Society, um, wise and erudite voice on all things public service broadcasting, uh, and most recently chair of ITV. Uh, welcome, Sabita. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to chat for about half an hour or so, and then we will open it up to questions from the from the floor. Um, I'm hoping that we can weave a conversation together in the next few minutes, touching on public service broadcasting, which is one of the central pillars of, of, of a topic on this, and really trying to get to the institutional memory of PSB from those who've uh, who've built it over the course of the last 30 years. Um, I think the two perspectives that you can bring uniquely relative to, uh, to other people we've spoken to is firstly the perspective of an independent producer. Uh, relating that, I think, to uh, one of your specialist subjects, which is the UK's creative economy. Um, and then particularly a perspective, both from uh, your time on the board of Channel 4, but most recently, obviously, from, from ITV, around what PSB looks like from the inside of a commercial player as you navigate the need to please shareholders with the need to live up to a license fee and the kind of the overall public purposes of PSB. So that's what I'm hoping we'll get to. That's an excellent agenda. It makes it sound like an edition of This Is Your Life. <laughs> <laughs> I, if I had a big red book, I would present it to you now. Although uh, it is Lens Live, I should point out that hopefully the audio will work. I'm actually in central Cambridge uh, for the um, reasons of the wrong type of snow or the wrong type of train. Uh, so uh, unfortunately not joining you in person. Um one of the things, well, the, the question I always start with, and I think you've spoken recently at the voice of the listener and viewer, um, uh, a definition of public service broadcasting and why it still matters. What's, wh- what do you think public service broadcasting is? Apparently, it's not called public service broadcasting. According to Ofcom, it's now called public service media. We will come to that. And, Absolutely. And there's a good reason for that, actually. Uh, PSM. It hasn't quite caught on PSM yet. Everybody still talks about PSB. But broadcasting is a somewhat otios word, since really the modern world is about narrow casting, or <laughs> a lot of it is about now, increasingly about narrow casting, one-to-one on the, in the streaming area. But anyway, um, look, I think the most important thing to say about public service broadcasting or public service media is not as I'm afraid it happens far too often to look backwards and talk about the great days of this, that or the other, um, and golden ageism is much to the fore in such conversations, but to talk about why would you want a regulatory regime that delivers programs with a uh, de- uh, uh, with the intention of delivering a public good in the 21st century. And you have to justify everything from BBC to the very Ofcom regime that governs ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, in that light. So why would you want it in the 21st century? And as I have actually said to I'm blue in the face, so I shall repeat it for your benefit, John, and I hope not to put everybody else in the room to sleep. Um, there are three lenses through which you have to look at it. One is democratic, the second is cultural, and the third is economic. Um, I can think of no more... Uh, laudable definition of a democracy than you divert public funds to an organization who's remitted to hold the government to account. Seems to me almost like a definition of a liberal democracy, that, and that's the BBC's function, and it gets those public funds. So 
You cannot have a working democracy without informed citizens. And the 21st century argument about this goes like this. It says, in the internet world, the world of rumor, gossip, and paranoia, uh, the Tower of Babel, the era in which anybody you're communing with online tells you that Elvis is still alive and Paul McCartney's dead and the moon landings were faked and all the other wonderful things that those QAnon people believe in. Um, in that era, you need a gold standard of journalism, well-funded, with ethics standards uh, and well-trained uh, operatives. You need that more than you ever did before. So that's why not just the BBC, but also the news services that ITV, Channel 4 and Channel 5 do are important. And to those who say, well, yes, but the younger generation is getting all their news from TikTok and Instagram, such as it is, um, well, then we say those public service media organisations have got to do better, and they are trying to do better at getting their gold standard news onto those media as well. But even when they're not the most popular thing on those media, when there's a major event, you need to be able to go to the gold standard, to the BBC website, to see if it's true, because you know you can trust them, and you know they'll have fact-checked it, and in fact they even have reality-check you know, correspondence today. So that's the democratic bit. The second bit is the cultural bit. I describe this uh, as programs by us, for us, about us. And it's everything from daytime strands to soap operas. And many of those programs are in the schedule and the schedule, uh, that is the percentage of live viewings we know diminishes year by year, but live viewing is still hovering around 50%. And anyway, a lot of those shows are picked up also uh, as a catch up activity as well. And those, those are the programs that are the national conversation that touch a chord, that take the path of the nation. If you look at the various soap operas, every social issue we struggle with, you'll see explored and aired in those in those uh, in those drama plot lines. So that's the cultural bit. And I might add, you know, the two point five billion plus of uh, funds that uh, public service media puts into homegrown programming um, is uh, distinct in its way from the very excellent international fare that we get from all the international streamers in that they have no particular desire. They do make programs about Britain and the more they want subscribers in Britain, the more they'll make programs that are based here, but they don't have the, um, they don't have the remit or the regulatory duty to make those sorts of programs. So there is a very important role for them, I would say, particularly as we get, you know, the, the example I like to give, and I, it's been picked up by a couple of government ministers, so it must be true, is sex education, shot in Wales, absolutely fabulous series, curiously not of a particular culture, sort of more of an internet, brilliantly an internationally appealing show. And none the worse for it, but not the same as programs about us, for us, by us. And the third thing is the economy, the, the, the cultural economy, the creative industries. The screen industries make up about one fifth of the creative industries. And in the screen industries themselves, public service media sits at the core of them with all the work it does, everything from commissioning independent producers to um, uh, commissioning half their programs or so outside London, uh, the training and skills work they do, and indeed encouraging the clusters you see in places like Bristol, Glasgow, uh, Salford, uh, and Manchester, uh, Leeds, and so on. And clusters, by the way, are absolutely key to the development of the creative industries. And one of the ways in which this country can level up uh, and spread um, economic growth uh, in parts of the country outside London. We're not heavy manufacturers. We make digital goods and we can sell digital goods wherever we like uh, and we can set up wherever we like. All you need for a good cluster is decent higher education, uh, local politicians who get it, local businesses who get it, and um, uh, perhaps some funding agencies. So uh, very important to the creative industries. And I think that was probably 10 minutes longer than the answer you wanted, but I'm afraid that is the answer from my point of view. No, all all good and very very concise. So, uh, part of the sort of the debate that has 
roiled around with with whichever politicians have been in power at any given point in time is uh, everybody agrees that there are there are going to be market gaps and that for public good reasons, there's going to be stuff that, that we need to intervene and put public money into. You've mentioned news. Uh, people often mention children's content as well. Um, regional news has always come up as a, as a topic, um, etc. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the uh, what Lord Putnam described as the NHS of the mind. So this is about um, our collective culture, our society, about social uh, social progression, etc. Um, and that requires a universal service with lots of different types of content in, in it delivered at scale and con- also consumed at scale. Where are you on the on that kind of spectrum? In terms, of, in terms of looking forward, in terms of where we where we should try and land going forward. How often I do an interview where somebody accuses me of being on the spectrum, John. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to answer your question, look, uh, this question of market failure is is a sort of slightly odd one in Britain because we had the BBC, we had we had the BBC before we had a market. <laughs> the market came after the BBC, so we've had a tradition of public provision in this country, cultural and political. So I always think that one should just temper market failure discussions by some of our more zealot, zealous friends on the far right uh, who think the market can deliver everything. Uh, just to say that that's not quite how we've done it. That's not where we've come from. But um, I, I'm in the middle. Um, I don't pretend actually that the BBC can can really in the future be a completely universal service and do everything for everybody. That's ridiculous, but it can do specific things, some of which I've already laid out for you. And, you know, when it comes to market failure, just to give some examples, uh, Sky News, which is excellent, um, is not going to put money into the world service or a world service of its own, which is one of the most important things the BBC does for Britain uh, around the world. Um, and the streamers who are not only streaming great shows to consumers in the UK, but are now very, very important part of the production ecology because they brought actually more billions now into uh, production, the production industry of the UK. All the studios that are being built either by them or for them are all in London and the Southeast. They don't. Uh, look after production centres in Leeds or Manchester or Glasgow or Bristol as the BBC and ITV do. So there's a whole series of ways in which the public service broadcasters are required to and deliver on things that you can call it market failure. That's a, failure is a rather strong word, just things that deliver public good that wouldn't otherwise be delivered. Given that, and if you look forward um, by your definition, even the BBC doesn't necessarily become a universal service providing everything to everybody there's two words john sorry to there's two meanings of universal there one is yep. is it available to everyone the second is has it yep. got something for everybody i think it should be available to everyone but david putnam has a view of it of doing yes. sort of a huge sort of everything for everyone I, I think that's lovely that he says it but i don't think it's realistic so given that do we need to stop thinking so much about institutions and funding models and start thinking about what sort of content we want and how it gets funded which is a slightly different question um, and given that, uh, there's been debates over the years about things such as an Arts Council of the Air. If we're going to end up with a bunch of institutions and, and, and players who are part commercially funded and part publicly minded, do we need to rethink how public money is allocated? So um, the famous uh, directions given by the legendary Irish person who said uh, when asked, you know, what was the way to X or Y, said, I wouldn't start from here. Uh, actually, we start from here. Why would you take apart an institution like the BBC and abolish it when you've spent 100 years uh, building it up, enriching it, and making it part of the fabric of the country? Why would you dream of doing that? It's absolutely mad. Um, why would you uh, take away some of the other contributors to public service media? Uh, ITV itself faces a dilemma right now because it's meant to reapply for a 10-year license it, within a few months in 2023 for a license to start from 24, but it doesn't know what the terms of that license will be because the white paper that is promising prominence, access and fair value uh, on the new foreign-owned platforms 
through which most of the signals are going to be uh, distributed in the future, as Tim Davy said only a couple of days ago. Um, uh, that uh, legislation, we just don't know if this current government is going to give it any priority. And if I may, the problem there has been that the same white paper had the privatization of Channel 4 in it, for which I think there are many strong arguments. There are strong arguments for the privatization of Channel 4 and strong arguments for the not privatizing it. It's a, I would say it's a pretty in equilibrium. But the point is, everybody is up in arms about it, and it's caused an enormous stink, and nobody's discussed what really matters in the white paper, the existential issue of prominence, access, and fair value. That we need legislated this year. So ITV itself may find itself facing within a year a decision as to whether it was to remain a public service broadcaster. Why would you put it in that position when you have this public good being delivered? So there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done in the next few months precisely on this issue. But my basic thing would be if you've got some well-founded institutions who know what they're doing, who deliver quality stuff, uh, why would you wish to disband them unless you are a vandal? Not necessarily to say, saying disband them. On the other hand, those same institutions, if you look at the metrics, uh, which David Elstein and others have, have poured over for many years in terms of amount of money going to different uh, types Yes, of now David Elstein. I always like to, uh, I'm a great fan of the um, David Elstein law of unintended consequences, where your intellect runs away with you with wonderful ideas, but the outcome may not be everything you wanted. Let me put it in the in these terms, which is... <laughs> If you just look at the at the amount of real terms investment in particular genres, which which many would argue are, are at the heart of any PSB remit, so uh, particular types of news and current affairs, uh, arts programming, educational programming, children's programming, you know the list goes on and on. There's a risk, or is there a risk, um, that we are the kind of proverbial frog in hot water, and actually the the, the breadth of content. Uh, that you've described as being so publicly valuable, if you rewound 10, 20, 30 years, that breadth of content and the amount of money going in is less than it was. And that's simply because of the commercial pressures and the model. And if we believe that's a good idea and the commercial model isn't going to come back, the only way of solving that is by trying to reallocate public money in a different way. That's not to say we dissolve the institutions, but it is to say that contestable funding, as has just been tried with children's to the benefit of CITV and others, uh, needs to be part of the, arguably needs to be part of the mix going forward. Or do you say actually it needs to be through institutions? You can't. It needs to be through institutions and remits. You putting a central pot somewhere and dividing it up doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I don't particularly see the benefit of contestable funding. I mean, you, you know, maybe there is a book somewhere that's been written by somebody much much cleverer than me that lays out why it's so brilliant an idea. What I do know is that we have contested public service media because we have three or four organizations who do compete. Uh, they compete for advertising dollars and um, uh, uh, they compete for ideas. Uh, and if they're able to fund, and actually the point you say, the diminishing amount of money going into programs, actually the fact that it's held up above 2.5 billion is rather brilliant when you consider what's happened to the rest of the market. So, yes, I think it is. Of course, there are all sorts of uh, threats uh, facing it. And we live, we are in the early years of, of an industrial revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, the digital revolution, where all bets are off. Uh, it, it is a very, very uncertain time and things are moving very, very fast. But uh, that is the reason why we should uh, secure, if we can, uh, the organizations that know what they're doing, that do it quite well, do they have a future? Um, if you pass laws um, that give them a, 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 the, the same uh, rights, in fact, they ha had under the 2003 Communications Act, but updated for prominence. Um, uh, and um, if you have a the public will to continue to seek to have hypothecated money going into content, why would you not ask the BBC to do a lot of it? Because it does it rather well. Why would you disband it? Uh, uh, for, the, for the record, I'm not saying disband it, but uh, I'm posing the question as to... Uh, well, let me put, uh, let we, me put it to you another way. If you, may, if you brought in a regime of ruthlessly contested funding, you would be disbanding it. Let me assure you of that. That makes... Yes, I, I agree. Um, well, that's, that's something he's agreed. That's good. We're, we're making progress. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, if, 
you're you're chairing a board meeting at ITV. My God, I thought I was talking to you. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I, I, I want you to cast your mind back to chairing a board meeting at ITV and you're looking at the regular reports that come in. What is the balance or to, to what extent are the meeting of public good and PSB license requirements and all the rest of it uh, central to those conversations, clearly alongside, um, uh, probably trumped by, ratings and commercial impact? To what extent is it part of the day-to-day conversation at ITB as to the degree of meeting its public service remit? Um, actually, it's uh, and uh, not because of what I say or don't say at a board meeting, but because of what the chief executive says, uh, Carolyn McCall, uh, who believes strongly in public service broadcasting. It is very much to the fore, whether it's um, the duty of care when you make programmes to the people participating in them, or whether it is um, the way in which uh, um, uh, ITV Studios, the production company, grows and sorts of programmes it makes, the um, companies it acquires and where they are in the country, like they've just recently made a substantial acquisition in Bristol, the programme that makes uh, a lot of natural history. Um, no, it's very much to the fore, very much to the fore. It's, uh, and then often, um, uh, you know, updates and news about the regional news provision across the country. Uh, but it isn't the most important thing on the agenda uh, uh, because the most important thing on the agenda is developing the business model that will survive uh, in a in, a, in the case of ITV, a, 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 um, an organization that doesn't take public funds, uh, it has to survive commercially. And so what that model should be, uh, we've all seen the launch of ITVX in the last seven days, that's part of that story. Uh, that's the that's the existential issue. That's the issue that's uh, really um, at the top of the agenda. Um, turning to politics for a minute and the politicians. So lots of pressures in the system. This is a PSB essentially, alongside tax credits and lots of other things, are essentially a policy intervention as to the way that we want the, the country to operate on the, the three lenses that you've looked at and so on. Um, if you look at... Uh, pretty much every Ofcom PSB review since the day they started, uh, they all pretty much say something similar, but with a bit more intensity, that it's a great PSB system, but it's creaking at the edges. We probably need to rethink it at some point, um, and, uh, but, but it's okay for now, so we, we won't touch it with a we, – we won't do anything radical now. But just, I think, must have been five, six years ago, Mark Thompson wrote um, in, in David Putnam's review of, of PSB, um, PSB will become more, not less important to British audiences. Political support for PSB has been weaker than at any time in its history. This growing mismatch is the central problem of current broadcasting policy. Um, to what extent do politicians understand the things that you're laying out and the nuances of them and the importance of them? Or do they really think about this is about uh, what level are we going to set the license fee and then we can forget about it again? If you're sitting in the signal box at number 10 and you've got PSB as one of the levers you can pull, do you understand what it is and what it's for? Well, John, I have to ask you, how much do you generally think politicians understand about anything? <laughs> uh, and then if you come down to the specifics of broadcasting policy, which it can be very technical, is moving very, very fast, uh, they don't understand very much about it. And I don't know if you've appeared in front of a select committee, as I have, uh, the level of knowledge of the people uh, interrogating you is is poor, actually. And I don't say that as a personal criticism of them. It's, it's evidence of the way the system works and the fact that they are not very well resourced. If they have a researcher, there'll only be one. Uh, and they're trying to cover too many issues. So, no, it's not well understood. Um, look, and what should be well understood is that the things are moving so fast that we need to do a few things. And uh, I, I personally, and I've talked about what we need to do in terms of passing, updating the 2003 Communications Act and the prominence legislation. I personally think that there's room for one and possibly two strong public service media organizations in every European country. We do know, and Tim Davies said it the other day, and he's quite right, that the majority of those programs will be streamed that is, they'll be received over the internet. It doesn't mean they won't be scheduled. In fact, quite a lot of successful streaming services have so-called fast channels that are effectively scheduled. So, I mean, uh, it doesn't mean it's the end of the schedule. Um, and so if we're going to, if, that, if, if I'm right, one or two organisations, it means we've got uh, too much profusion at the moment. 
Uh, and that means we're going to have to have changes in the competition laws. Uh, and as you know, and I've talked about it quite a lot publicly, I call it kangaroo or warning from history. Uh, we had our hands tied behind our back and we were told we were not allowed to launch a joint um, streaming service. I, it would have been called Catch Up at the time, but effectively it was a streaming service in 2009 before Netflix, Amazon, Apple and the rest have been heard of. Uh, so we had our hands tied behind our back and they were all invited into our market. Um, by now, that service, by the way, that kangaroo service, whatever it would have been called, would have been turning over billions and commissioning massive amounts of original programming and would be way ahead and probably a world um, product as well. But we decided not to do that because we had competition uh, uh, um, uh, regulators who could only look in the rearview mirror and didn't look at the road ahead. And it's the worst, probably one of the worst decisions ever made. Now, if we get that forward thinking right now, and that means you've got to redefine, for instance, the advertising market. ITV has a 45% share of the TV advertising market, allegedly. But we spend every day at ITV competing with uh, Netflix. Uh, sorry, not just with Netflix. Sorry, competing with Facebook and Google to sell video advertising. The video advertising market is something ITV has an 18% share of. Where is the redefinition of the advertising market that needs to happen? That's just another example, along with the prominence legislation. There's so much work that needs to be done. Is it well understood in Westminster? No. I will come back to that in a second. I want to shift very quickly as well um, to the creative economy and uh, your perspective as, a, as an ex-producer. Um, to what extent, if you think through the, the 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 birth of your production company and the growth of the independent sector um, and uh, the growth of the major players within it in particular, to what extent was a PSB, the kind of the interlocking remits and money of PSB central to that ecology growing? Would it have happened if PSB hadn't been there or would it just happened in a different way? Well, I think if you now look at the appetite from the streamers for independently produced programs, it would have happened in the end in a particular way, though I, I would suggest with far fewer programs buyers for us about us, as I've explained already. But at the time it happened, it couldn't have happened any other way. So think 1982, the founding of Channel 4, with the remit only to, to commission programs uh, from independent producers, then 1988 and the rule that brought in the quota for the other broadcasters. Then the 2003 Communication Act that gave producers the right to own the IP of their programs, quite apart from anything else. Just think, do you know we sold about 350 million pounds worth of programs abroad in 2003? Do you know it's now reached 1.5 billion? Because none of those rights are warehoused and every uh, producer is selling the hell out of them. So all sorts of interventions uh, have made a difference to the ecology of our production industry. Uh, and in the end, there would have been a healthy independent production industry, we now know, because streaming technology has meant there's a lot of pro, um, um, companies on the internet who want to commission programs from independent producers, but you wouldn't have known that in the 1980s, and it wouldn't have happened then. To what extent, we, in a conversation with David Abraham, he said um, one of the ways to think about PSB going historically, but going forward as well, is they take bets on on development they take bets on new talent and essentially it's the, it's the kind of risk capital in the system that the streamers won't necessarily put in that's partly because the voices that are needed to to create the sorts of shows that you're talking about um uh, are not necessarily at the stage of their career that they're ready for streamers but also they just the, the streamers aren't in the market for those sorts of shows to what extent is that still true going forward well i think it's pretty true at the moment um you know why, and I don't know, um, this is not an up-to-date statistic, it might be a couple of years old, but um, Britain had the about 50% of the worldwide trade in entertainment, TV entertainment formats. Now, most of the time when I was selling hit formats around the world, when I worked for Endemol, broadcasters around the world would say, bring me a proven hit. If every broadcaster in every country said, bring me a proven hit, there would be no new shows because they wouldn't be investing in new ideas. And the thing you do get in the UK, to a lesser extent in Holland, and you certainly get it in the US, is broadcasters willing to invest in new shows. And it's the British broadcasters, particularly outside drama, you've got to give the streamers their due. They've taken lots of creative risks in talent, 
in, in, in drama production. But outside drama, that, that job is still done by the domestic broadcasters. And presumably those sorts of formats are not... Uh, are still going to be reliant on TV commissioning money. They're not necessarily going to come up through the through the YouTubes of the world. <clears throat> well, different sorts of things come up through the YouTube world. We don't want to get ourselves in a sort of state of mind that says the only thing that matters is that which is an hour long and broadcast on a public service channel. So there's massive amounts of brilliance on YouTube and TikTok. Uh, extraordinary creativity tends to be very short form. Uh, but out of that will come long form hits in the future. So let's not close our mind to that. Looking forward, um, a lot of these conversations uh, kicked off um, actually with a conversation with Mark Oliver last year, uh, looking looking forward towards 2028. Between now and 2028, when the charter has to be, uh, the new charter needs to be in place, um, and where the Secretary of State, but one, has announced that the license fee will come to an end. We'll see if that's uh, even feasible, let alone wise. Um, but along, in parallel with that, ITV4 and 5 licenses renewed, ring fence funding for, for Sky News coming to an end. Um, so quite a lot up for grabs. As you've described, quite a lot of change in the system. Um, a shift from uh, public service broadcasting to public service media, uh, however that transpires. And in the process, consolidation of some form or other, how do we get from A to B um, in a world in which the politicians, don't, it's probably too important to be left to the politicians and they don't necessarily understand the detail, where we've got quite uh, 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 some challenges in institutional memory, lots of lots of secretaries of state over the last 10 years and nobody really in place long enough to get to grips with it. Um, Lord Burt very famously said on uh, uh, as he was leaving the BBC, don't let things happen to you. How do we not let things happen to us with unintended consequences and how do we get on the front foot? We do it in a really British way. We stagger forward blindfolded, pulling ourselves <laughs> out of potholes as we go. I mean, look. I guess what's partly... You and I have had quite a detailed conversation about some of the trends, some of the things that we need to do and why we need to do them. Some of our understanding of the trends in our markets and the technological trends... Uh, these are not widely understood. The main motivation within the breasts of quite a few politicians is simply try and kick, um, shoot the messenger, kick the news organisations they don't like, they hold them to account. Um, that's a base motive, but I'm afraid it's there in spades. Uh, and the debate about the BBC seems to be all around how it's funded, not whether we want it. The question is, do you want it? If you want it, then of course you can find a way of funding it. Yes, it might be a license fee because, in fact, as Churchill said of democracy, it's the least worst, you know, system. And, you know, the license fee is always about to be abolished, isn't it, until it's renewed and then it's renewed. Um, but yes, it might be a media tax, media household tax. It might be attached to the, to the council uh, tax. Uh, council has the, the, the um, it is called the cap one, lost my, the council tax. Yes, right. yes. You'll let that bit out, I'm no doubt. Or you won't, maybe. I don't know. Not hello. Um, <laughs> uh, it might be attached to the council tax. It might come out of direct taxation. My um, plea to politicians right now is let us agree why we want the BBC, and let us agree it should have some, some hypothecated funding. Let us then go forward and in detail, because we've got five years to do this, discuss what that, how that funding system is. That's fine. So long as you've made those two things first. They're, they're not going into that conversation full of malign intent, wishing, in fact, to cut it down or kick it in the backside or whatever. And I'm afraid there's a bit of that about. Uh, five years to get the detail in place. Um, arguably not very long before manifestos start to get written. Yes, um, and so we will see what the manifestos say. But if a manifesto of a, any party said, uh, we think the licence fee is coming to an end and hope we should have a new system, I'd say, would you just like to write a paragraph in there about what does the BBC do in society? How does it reflect our values? What public good does it deliver? And then you might want to put in a sentence about the funding. At similar points in the past where there's been um, a big technological change or a, a kind of rethink as to what the structure should be, should be, 
um, there's been a moment where we've sort of got off the bus and put a committee together. So Pilkington and and Peacock, maybe you need another P. Um, is this a big? Is this a moment that is big enough for that? And is that the right intervention to to try it? Essentially, or, or maybe a citizens' assembly. It, it almost strikes me that that with so little capacity and so much uncertainty, do we need to put a bunch of people on the side to try and figure this out? Uh, yes, of course we do. Uh, but um, their report will be published, and whether it agrees with the prejudices of the government of the day will be seen. Otherwise, it will gather dust. Yep. Of course, it would be a good idea, John. I propose you as the chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. I've got nothing on this afternoon. Uh, very good. I'm going to open it up for questions. Um, I can't. I might, your your heads on my screen are all a little, little too small to be seen. So uh, I am relying on on Pete and Craig to do a traffic control on this as to who wants to ask. And perhaps everybody would say who they are, and then that would help you. That too. would be great. Perfect. Come on, this is Will Page. Will Page, former chief economist at Spotify and author of Tars and Economics. And the question is around something that's in the afterword of my book, which is not to debate the license fee as how much we pay in, but how it's allocated out. Now, in music, we have a debate called Pro Rata versus User Centric, which essentially says, should we collect £10 per month of music that everyone pays into a big pot and allocate a pro rata share? Would you get 1% of all the streams? You get 1% of all cash. That's for professionals, though. The alternative model is user-centric, where we ring-fence Peter Battlejet's 999 month for Spotify to just Peter Battlejet's music. And we ring-fence Will Pages 999 for Spotify to just Will Pages' music. So it's my music, my money. Do you see there's a role for that, potentially, in how the BBC allocates my public service licence fee to just the content I consume, so I'm not cross-subsidising content that I never watch? Uh, I thought about this very carefully, and in a word, no. <laughs> and the reason I would say no is that um, there are certain things you do for the greater good. Yeah. And I think uh, paying a subvention to the BBC, if we continue to do it that way, is something you pay into almost like um, a mutual fund that is for the greater benefit. And you take something out of it, or you choose to take nothing out of it. But it is a, 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 um, it's a, it's a principle that's probably not so fashionable these days. But the principle of mutuality is a good one. So there may be good reasons, by the way, for doing it in the world you're talking about, because you're talking about how it is allocated to artists, is what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, with the BBC, we're not talking about specifically about that so much. We're talking about the, the general funding of the whole organisation. So. Um, no, I, I don't think it's a good idea. Can I? I'm going to jump in on that as well, because um, uh, I think this this loops back to the conversation we had with uh, with David Putnam, and I think where we got to with that is it's 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 analogous to saying uh, that people shouldn't have to pay for education if they don't have children. There is a benefit in everybody in children being educated, and it's 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 not a dissimilar thing. But you either buy into that as a philosophy or you don't. But it is, nevertheless, it sits at the base of our, our tax-paying system. Uh, I don't happen to have a stone in my gallbladder, at least I hope I don't, but I'm paying for quite a few people having stones taken out of their gallbladders. And good luck to them. Just offer one supplementary comment on that. I'm inclined to agree with you on mutual analogy, and I always use the analogy of a gym. I joined a gym not just for the apparatus I use, the treadmill, but the apparatus that I could use without friction. And that's the option value of the subscription fee. But one countering argument could be that the definition of public service broadcasting, which we debate all the time, becomes less top-down from executives gathered in more offices and more bottom-up because it's determined by the public. So um, if you wanted to determine, determine it bottom-up, it wouldn't destroy the idea of mutuality. But you could say you wanted to um, be more responsive to the tastes and the desires of, of, of listeners and viewers. Now, I have to say... Um, ITV and BBC wouldn't have any, uh, in the case of ITV uh, viewers, in the case of BBC listeners and viewers, it wouldn't have any if it didn't pay attention to the desires and the tastes of its, mm. of, of, of its um, listeners and viewers. So I think that's probably taken care of by the fact that, um, you know, if you, we're in the business of ears and eyeballs, and if we don't have them, we're not in business. So I think we do pay attention to what the interests are. So I think it does take it back to your very good and provocative question, which I think is a very good one to air, about, you know, do you pay into a general pot for the public good or just to consume what you want? Good question. Isabel. 
Hello, I'm Isabel Davis. I'm the Executive Director of Screen Scotland. Um, I was very interested in what you had to say about creative cl clusters and their importance. And um, you mentioned uh, local funding being part of a mix, but obviously from our point of view in Scotland, we're really interested in decision makers from the BBC as well and Channel 4. And I wonder what your opinion is on um, how diffuse that should be. Are we in the right place by now? Do you think it's getting better? And what might be the counter arguments for having real decision-making around uh, broadcast commissions around the UK? Mm. So um, Britain, despite the fact it is made up of four nations and all its regions, is one of the most centralised uh, countries in Europe, isn't it? I, personally, I think it comes from the 1980s when um, the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, for some might argue quite good reasons, lost all trust in local authorities behaving in a responsible manner. I'm thinking of Derek Hatton and Ken Livingstone and the, the wilder shores of their activities. And decision-making got more and more centralised. It was probably quite centralised already, got more and more centralised. It's far more centralised in Britain than most European countries. So though we have the four nations and we've got the delegated powers to the Scottish Parliament, we do have still have, uh, and indeed uh, arts funding, in fact, is split up between the nations. So there we have made a decision, but we haven't done it with, with the BBC. Uh, but, uh, and so the, I, I suspect people in Scotland still feel there's an awful lot of decision making goes on in London, and I suspect it, it, that is the case. So I would say we have some way to go what, to work out properly how we devolve in this country. And by the way, if you don't devolve, you don't get successful clusters either. And my experience with clusters was when I proposed um, investing a bit of public money in creative clusters, which I did in 2017, and it happened in 2018 via UKRI, UK Research and Innovation. And those nine creative clusters, where 50 million of public money went in, uh, and one, uh, one's in Edinburgh, and one's in Glasgow, I think, certainly one's in Edinburgh anyway, uh, 50 million of public money that went in uh, has been matched by, so far, 217 million of uh, other funding matching it. And it's been tremendously successful and it's linked uh, research excellence in universities to SMEs in, in, in a sector, the creative sector, which is much more innovative and R&D based than people give it credit for or understand. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that, I'm delighted you mentioned clusters and it, it is really enabling, but you can't do it unless you enable, unless you delegate, and unless you understand that it is in localities, people know where the talent is, and where the opportunities are. If on the other hand, they were determined to try and take some money and not encourage innovation, uh, then I would say, well, hold on. But you can't, you can't have that without empowering people. Uh, just your view then, what's your view? Um, I agree with you. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that's right. I, th I think there has been moves towards, um, we're told, uh, greater real decision-making power. I think it takes a while for that trust to be built up, but there is actually decisions that are made uh, locally. And I think you're right around innovation as well. I think I understand you correctly, but you need people to take risks. You know, and, and so I suppose it's not simply about telling a person that it's their decision to make, but that they are then brave enough to take that decision as opposed to Doing what's gone before, and I think sometimes that's um, you know, something I've observed is that you kind of want a bit more bold choices. And you know, yeah. thank you, good. Ben Keen, British Screen Forum. You said that there should be two organizations per market, two public service media organizations per market. Assuming you believe the BBC should be one. Who's the other? No, make, make no assumptions. Um, <laughs> Who's it be the two? Uh, and when you said that, I said there should be two. I, I, this was like, am I sitting here and announcing there will be two? No, I'm not. I'm just saying that the way things are going with the international competition from the streamers, there's room for one or two, is what I actually said. Um, or I would guess a maximum of two. I think you can perm that in any way you like. You could merge all sorts of different, or you could even keep. For instance, BBC and ITV is completely independent organisations, but with a streaming service, rerun Kangaroo, with a streaming service that, say, had 30 days free on the BBC, and after that was pay. In other words, Britbox enlarged or whatever. I'm not, this is not ITV policy. I'm no longer chair of ITV. I'm just thinking aloud. I don't think 
that our organization, our, our domestic uh, PSM, PS, Public Service Media Organizers will prosper unless there is greater cooperation uh, and greater mergers. So the campaign to save the independence of Channel 4, which I completely understand and have some sympathy for, um, is equally balanced by the fact that um, if you take a 10 to 20 year view, Channel 4 and Channel 5 and ITV and BBC cannot exist in their current form. So has got to, we've got to break the mould somehow. Sorry, just Pete, could I just jump in on that very, very quickly? Yeah. <clears throat> um, so much of this debate depends which end of the telescope you're looking down. And if you're looking down one from 30 years ago, you're trying to sustain as much as possible as the system has been versus if you're trying to reinvent it with a blank sheet of paper, now you start in a different place. We haven't really talked about plurality. So in your world, uh, in which the institutions evolve and we 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 try and figure out what the new configuration looks like, how important at the moment we have four different providers of different sorts of news, all regulated uh, through Ofcom in terms of the way they do it, plus Sky News as well. But essentially, you've got four public service broadcasters, public service broadcast institutions providing different flavours of news, admittedly with ITN underpinning um, <clears throat> a chunk of them. How important is it going forward that we have plurality in these different genres? Well, um, I think it's much more important that we have a gold standard. If you take the example of journalism, we have a gold standard, well-resourced, trusted, reliable, and uh, impartial news delivered by one or two organisations, and it is to have four competing, much more important. Uh, and let's remember Sky News is there, which does a really good job. Uh, just if you take a snapshot of uh, the current day, there's all the... Um, uh, newspapers, some of which are still quite well resourced, particularly the high-end ones in terms of their journalism, and there's everything else uh, online. So, <laughs> plurality, we've got it. What we want is gold standards. Makes sense. Okay, got and somebody else. Uh, Alex, then Martin, then Cesar. Hi, uh, Alex can together TV. Uh, we worked together years ago on the Summer of Arts when we were doing each channel at the Arts Council. I also worked on Kangaroo, which is a whole other other story. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, and it, it was about the um, TV advertising market that ITV and 4 between them would have too much share for digital advertising at the time, which uh, is a terrible decision. My question today is about um, Tim Davies' speech last week. So if you look at the commercial PSB model, after 15 years of streaming, still not the major source of income. Channel 4 is about 25% of revenue through streaming versus 75 for linear. Do you feel the intervention last week talking about BBC becoming a broadband delivered service by extension, potentially having a broadband levy as its, as its funding model, I would, I would assume, uh, would be welcomed by the other PSBs as they search for the new new funding. Well, look, it's it's unavoidable that um, the BBC will be delivered over the internet because that's just the way things are going technologically. I mean, you can kick against it if you want, but that's just what's happening. And that's how we're all consuming. That's why Sky have gone from a satellite uh, system to a to to sky glass which is an internet distributed system so um it, it's unavoidable that, that that's the trend and uh th that's why it raises the massive issue of if you want this to be available and findable you need prominence legislation um uh but um i was going to make one more point hang on a sec oh yes sorry um so although that is an inevitable trend, in my opinion, it would be a very, very foolish government that closed down DTT and DTT distribution. Not because Freeview exists on it and, and a lot of um, the current system is on it and I'm sticking the mud, but because when I saw that gas pipeline blown up, probably by Russia, but who knows, under the North Sea, uh, and when I see the conflict in the world today, the next target are the satellites. And the, and the undersea cables that take our internet signal. Our entire method of communication and almost our entire economy now depends on, I would say, something which is extremely vulnerable, which is the internet world. And it will be a very foolish government that took out an alternative means of the distribution of public, important public information. Just think how important BBC and ITV were during COVID, getting those key messages over. Uh, that the government wanted people to behave. And by and large, the British public did as they were asked with those key messages in, in, in mass broadcast. Uh, if you had all that taken out, or parts of it taken out, 
you must maintain an alternative method of distribution. So at the moment, I think DTT is not a stick in the mud, let's keep it for stick in the mud reasons, because we're conservative, it's a matter of national resilience. I'm sorry, I've, I've, I keep on jumping in. I've never heard that argument before. Maybe, I, maybe I've been asleep when it's been made. Is that, well, you've is been that, asleep when that... I've written it about 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> but is that, is, that, is that doing the rounds as being one of the reasons for DTT? I feel very passionately about it. it is, it's an, it's an, I'm sure others have said it, but it's an idea I came up with myself. Uh, and I have made it in a number of fora. Uh, and is it doing the rounds or has it been widely understood? No. When I said it in a speech the other day, the lovely Peter Bottomley, who's now father of the house, did put it in an early day motion and say the house would like to welcome it. I suspect one man and a dog signed the early day motion. <laughs> Martin. Uh, Martin Smith, Ingenious Media and Goldsmiths. Um, could we come back to a creative economy perspective on some of these issues and Isabel's cluster question and the way in which we frame public <laughs> policy? Because as you said right at the top of your remarks, Peter, you referred to the market failure approach to discussing interventions. And that's still a reflex approach. I mean, for example, right now, the effectiveness of the creative sector tax reliefs is being considered by the Treasury and by the revenue against a broadly market failure set of reference points. And it, it, in that case, it's okay, because you sort of come up with the right answer. But if you think about clusters, where they have been successful is because of the way in which interventions, previous interventions, have interacted with each other. And that's what gives us our strength in the creative economy, it seems to me. And, and the PSB interventions, of course, are a crucial part of this. But, but here's my question, because I want to come specifically to your 17 recommendation and the subsequent implementation of the clusters and the fact that the future funding of those clusters has not been secured. If you look and understand that clusters basically take 20 or 30 years, really, to get bed in, economically, you know, Hollywood, Soho, and all the rest of it. Are we not at risk of missing a trick here, uh, simply because so many people in politics have this reflex kind of market failure approach uh, to building for the future? I suppose the first thing one should say is that lots of clusters are going to grow and are going to prosper without any government support, mm -hmm. or without much government support, because uh, we are a creative nation. The creative industries is going to grow. Uh, and um, if higher education, uh, which is in a sense a state intervention, but not a cluster intervention, yeah. um, if it, it, it does its job properly and more and more universities are understanding their responsibility is to encourage spin-outs, where I, I chair the Royal College of Art, We've got 80 funded spin-outs there. We're second only to Oxford and Cambridge for, for funded spin-outs of uh, Createch um, ideas. Um, uh, so, so organically, quite a lot will grow. The question for me is, could you have much greater growth? And could you have growth in places where it's not going to happen otherwise, mm. where people deserve growth and they deserve... When the creative industries grow, as I like to say very often, and you and I have said this many times, Martin, you don't just get the economic benefit, you get the cultural benefit. So this is the sector that delivers you a, a better quality of life, empathetic citizens, uh, whatever slightly intrinsic qualities you want to talk about. So in that sense, uh, I, I am very sad at the moment. And as you know, I'm uh, I'm on manoeuvres yes. uh, because the clusters are come to their final year of funding next year mm. and there is no means of a small amount of money, even if it's half the amount last time, going not into the same clusters necessarily, mm. but new ones. But not just new ones geographically, but also uh, new ones in terms of the different subsectors. Creative industry, as you know well enough, is made up of so many subsectors. So there's three subsectors that uh, we haven't had um, clusters in advertising, marketing, mm. uh, pub publishing, mm -hmm. 
music, architecture, all of these are really interesting. They've all got their own technological uh, developments going on that are rapid and dramatic, all of which have both cultural and economic opportunities, and all of which with a little bit of seed corn can make things go faster, particularly if it's thoughtful research driven. Uh, so yes, I'm very sad. <laughs> Um, and I really see it as a way of genuine levelling up. Uh, you can build as many railways and roads as you like, and I'm not against that. But this is something far more organic, far more interesting, and far more dynamic for local communities. Susan. Um, Kumar, and I run Screen Skills. We've had these conversations a few times, um, Baz, about the technological trends in USA today a lot of the trends that are happening in our sector are quite disruptive are not understood. So I guess my question sitting here is thinking, what is it we can do better to make them understood? Because certainly that is my experience too. And also, do we use mechanisms such as sector vision or industrial strategy so we can actually find a way of getting from A to B? Because otherwise we're stuck. Well, I don't think we're stuck. We, we stagger forward, as I say, blindfolded and <laughs> falling into various potholes, but you could say we're sort of almost going forwards. <laughs> um, but look, I, I think, uh, see, that's a really good question. And and I think John mentioned it earlier, or somebody did, I think it was John. Uh, we're coming towards an election and it's an opportunity because uh, I don't, I'm not a member of any specific political party. I'm happy to work with any political party, but I'm more interested in ones that might might be have the ability to take power and we have a real opportunity in the next 12 to 15 months because it's in about 15 months time that the manifestos will start being written 12 to 15 months to get things understood and it's all of our jobs around this table because we're all engaged in this to make sure that um particularly opposition say say um uh, opposition becomes the next government i'm not predicting the next government but it's possible as we read um they have the airtime they've got space to think about policy things in a way people in government simply don't have. It's not even their fault. They're just dealing with one Daily Mail headline after another. Uh, you know, one immigrant crisis and one heating crisis and one cost of living crisis and inflation crisis and so on. But people who are in opposition have got time to think. So there's a real opportunity to get our point across thoughtfully. And that's what we should all be doing. And certainly I am doing the rounds myself. John. Uh, John Enser, CMS. Um, you said, which is right, that ITV has a decision to make ideally once the prominence rules have been set as to whether to renew its PSB license. I guess one, one question is, in three to five years time, let's assume ITV doesn't renew its license, how does it look different than if it did renew? Because that is certainly one definition of the PSB contribution that ITV is making and would not make if it was no longer a PSB. Yeah. Uh, look, we're speculating, aren't we? We are. Here. Um, I I'm prepared to speculate a bit. Um, let's remember that ITV, you know, more than half of ITV's revenue comes from running a production company, a very successful worldwide production company that's growing quite, quite strongly at the moment. Um, so in terms of its business, that's so different from the business of being a broadcaster or a narrowcaster or whatever you want to call it. Um, so that's one point to make. And that 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 um that part of the business will continue to grow. Um another point to make is that I, I think definitely um uh, regional news would be at risk. And you might say that regional news is based on you know 17 slightly arbitrary aerial where the aerials were placed as the original definition of where the regional news areas are where they were hills really <laughs> but as as um local uh journalism becomes more and more difficult to finance and local politicians are uh, and local councils and the business of local politics is not as reported as well as it used to be which is a a, def a, a democratic deficit we have I think re ITV regional news alongside BBC regional news would be a, a major loss. And I, th I suspect that would go. I, I don't think national news would definitely go. I think it's a, it, has, it plays a role. It's a very important part of ITV's offer, its brand, 
Um, and it sort of pays its way with the advertising that's served in it, although, you know, the news programmes are slightly lower rating. So I think the biggest thing to suffer would be that. But then you you would have to look at the independent quota, uh, um, which would be another possible casualty, as would um, possibly the amount of money that goes outside London. But I doubt that. That's a major point, that last one, because our production centres in uh, Manchester and Leeds are so important to us. I say us. I'm not on the board anymore, <laughs> but um, then I'm trying to I'm trying to detoxify myself. But I'm trying, trying, trying. Brilliant. No more in the room, John. And I think we're we're about to. Oh, sorry, one more, Thank Monica. You. Sorry, Monica. Thank you very much, uh, Monica Chadder, board member at the BFI, and thank you very much for a really interesting discussion. Um, I would just like to follow up with you around uh, the sort of education piece, if I may. Um, my background is creative industry, but one of those clusters is when I was deputy chair at Queen Mary University of London. And the sort of staggering piece for me was this almost disconnect between authority and power within higher education, but also the career service across the board. Um, now, with few exceptions, I think, um, are mediocre. Um, and certainly, I think I agree with you about the levelling up agenda. I think that if we don't get people young enough, but also whatever media studies means um, as a subject, if we don't excite the human spirit early enough about the creative industries, together with all of the roles that play out through the, well, the technology or the roles that don't even exist yet, I wonder what your perspective is on how do we, as senior leaders in the creative industries, um, lobby to make sure that 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 this is on government's agenda, or is it really the opposition uh, party? Because my concern is we really are missing a beat here, and a whole generation will go through mm. without realising about production accountants, makeup artists, the opportunity areas in Bradford where you may get a, a young Muslim girl in hijab who might be the most astonishing person in special effects, by the way. But to me, there's a disconnect between sometimes seeing that, and I wonder if you had a perspective on it. I do. Uh, there's a complete disconnect, um, and um, uh, it was you at the BFI who published a report in summer, commissioned by DCMS, about skills, and it had the startling statistic that 41% of 16-year-olds polled didn't know there was such a career as the creative industries. Yes. Now, there are some historical reasons for this. We're a sector that only invented itself in 1997, right? And uh, and we were the first country in the world to do it. And we've been fighting ever since to get ourselves more and more accepted, understood. And we're only halfway through that process compared to automotive or life sciences. Yes. So, you know, at the moment, the Labour Party is reaching out to life sciences, but we have to get in touch with them because they don't automatically think I must reach out to the creative industries, even though we're 6% of GBA and growing much faster than most other sections of the economy. So um, that's very important. Now, massive opportunities, career opportunities. Uh, we've been at fault within the creative industries because we haven't defined creative path, uh, career, uh, career pathways properly. Uh, so uh, I proposed that a lot more money should be put into careers advice in, 19, in 2017. And that money, two million was put in, but frankly, it's only scratched the surface. The work we have got to do in our own sectors and subsectors, so that um, both um, teachers and career advisors, kids and parents, and they're all different audiences, yes. understand what the opportunities are. Um, the skills shortage in the screen industries alone, as Sita here knows, are appalling at the moment. We're growing so fast. The AWR tax credits that Martin mentioned, we're growing so fast, we're short of everybody. We're short of everybody from, um, you know, hair, hairstylists, makeup artists, carpenters, to real-time game engineers and renderers. And massive opportunities. Um, and... Do, do the kids in school understand? Do their parents understand it's a proper pathway? Does FE, is FE organised in a way to deliver all the skills we're going to need? So um, it is a, a, a something to be said to the opposition again to understand, but it is something to be fair that the uh, government has also engaged in. We're in the middle of writing something called a sector vision at the moment, which uh, it was meant to come out in the summer, but there have been one or two political excitements that you may have noticed, and things have been delayed a bit. So I think it'll be out by February. And look, one third of that sector vision is about skills. And it's about what we need to do. And one of the things we need to do 
which we've never properly done, although it's happened in pockets, is a skills audit right across the subsectors to say, well, who do we need? Who do we need now? And who, do we, who are we going to need in 10 years' time? And therefore, and engage with um, education as to, you know, this, this is what we think we're going to need in the future. That's a whole dialogue we haven't really effectively had yet. Fantastic. I'm going to jump in. You've been incredibly generous with your time and insights, as ever. Um, I've got one last question to wrap up with. You've got a little bit more time now that you've stepped away from ITV. Um, what are you excited about getting busy with? Well, I, I've mentioned the Royal College of Art and the spin-outs and the Korea Tech and the remember the Royal College of Art may be where Bridget Riley and David Hockney studied, but it's also where James Dyson studied. Uh, we've got a new building that's just opened, which is full of robotics, drones, and all sorts of other excitements and um, joint ventures with Imperial College. As you know, a quarter of the people who apply to the Royal College of Art are not from an art background, they're engineers um, and um, and scientists. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, Co-chairing the Creative Industries Council, working on the sector vision that I just referred to, that's exciting. Um, and um, I'm on the board of a few companies. We'll see how they do. Fantastic. We will pause there. Uh, so thank you again uh, to CMS for hosting us. Uh, Baz, thank you again for your time. Thank you to Craig. Oh, who John, well this. curated. Round of applause for John. Oh. I think we. I think from, we, his, a, from his Cambridge fastness, I I got in with a factoid this morning. <laughs> I said, "Do you know that Oliver Cromwell was the MP for Cambridge?" And you didn't know that, did you? I and did I not know, know that. I read it last night. <laughs> I did not know that. I did. Sydney Sussex College, where his head still lies. <laughs> ah, even better. Is that, where, is that where it ended up? Yes, because <laughs> it got put on a pipe, didn't it? It did. It did. But it's under a. Black. And, and they're looking. Is. They're looking for a principal. They're looking for a principal at the moment, Martin. If you're feeling, like <laughs> <laughs> if you like to be a referee, <laughs> they are. They're searching for a principal at the moment. Anyway, I can see in the background that lunch is, lunch is on the cards for those in the room. Um, I will go and grab a mug of soup and we will continue the conversation over lunch. But in the meantime, Baz, thank you very much again. Thank you, for John. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to your colleagues for making it work. Absolutely. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> Thanks for hosting us as well. Thanks again to Sir Peter and everyone who attended for such a rich and enjoyable conversation. In our next episode, we change tack a little when I'm joined by Professor Jean Seaton. Jean has written the most recent volume of the BBC's official history and places public service broadcasting in its historical context to help shape its future. She elaborates on the idea we first heard in my conversation with David Putnam, that PSB is a deeply rooted part of the UK's social contract, tracing its origins back to the social levelling and devastation of the First World War. She also argues that a new consensus is now needed on how PSB can continue to bring society together in the future. Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe.